Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Baggett Schreier Duarte, a director, translator, and dramaturg. She's from Germany and currently resides in Toronto. After Scott and I went to see the play Nathan the Wise, which she directed last year, we were so interested to hear more of her thoughts and the journey behind how the production came to be. The play, written in the 18th century, explores what it means to love the other and how people from varying religions can share the same space and learn to do life together, regardless of differences. This has been a challenge through the ages and is just as prevalent in our 21st century culture. Keep listening to hear a bit more about this and how it personally affected Barriott. One more thing. We may not always share the same viewpoints or opinions as our guests, but our desire is for people to feel safe to join us at the table and on this journey of life together. I may not come to the same conclusions on everything Baggett has, and you may not either, but at least we can come together and bridge the divide with grace. My desire is to share the perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself and stir up good conversations. And while we're at it, may we continue to love well. Now please, enjoy our conversation on Church and the Other. Welcome, Birgit. I'm Thanks so for glad to have you. I'm really glad that we get to meet in person because a lot of my interviewees are over Skype. So this is actually really nice to see you face to face. After Scott and I saw Nathan and the Wise, or Nathan the Wise, it really resonated with us. And I read your playbill afterwards, too, and what you wrote in there. And I was like, this, this lady has some really good things to say. <laughs> she sounds very wise. So I just decided I would reach out. So great. Thank you for saying yes and joining me today. Well, this is it's really special when you get any response from audiences. And that kind of response, of course, is, is really welcome when you feel like something really landed and uh, you know sparked new thoughts and had a, a, a trickling yeah. out effect. Right. Because you probably don't hear that too often. Not all the time. And we get, we get feedback from audiences through colleagues, through my cast. I get emails when they hear... Um, over, you know, over the course of four months, you hear right. responses. Yeah. Um, sometimes we get personal responses. People email us um, who obviously have known me or have known a colleague, and then we get forwarded a, a, a beautiful response, and that's super special. So that those are the moments that really make it right. all worth it. That must be so reassuring. No. Oh, okay, yeah. you're making a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You're a theater director and translator and a dramaturg? How do you say that? <laughs> well, there's two camps. There's the dramaturgs, dramaturgs and there's the dramaturges. Okay. But since I'm from Germany and it's essentially a German word yeah. that was taken over into the English language, I say dramaturg. Okay. Yeah. So hard D. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there, you'll hear that in different ways. That's Sure. That's true. Like, so then explain to me, what does that yeah, actually mean? So funnily enough, it was actually Lessing himself who was the first sort of recorded um, dramaturg. And Lessing is the, the writer, writer of Nathan, Nathan the Wise. Nathan the Wise, exactly. Um, and he um, he was a writer and a philosopher, but he was also a critic and someone who worked in what we would now call the artistic team of a big company. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, 
the theater in Hamburg at the time. Okay. And so he actually worked for two years from 1767 to 69, I believe, um, as a critic, but also as what is now called a dramaturg um, with the artistic director of the company very closely. And he basically made sure that the, the quality um, remained really high and he was... Uh, you know, researching and reading, and then he would write about the shows that he saw, okay. and and he would report back to the artistic director. And so he was sort of the 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 outside set of eyes yeah. that a director and an artistic director often need to um, to stay focused and to keep the standards up, um, and so be kind of the artistic meter, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, so he wrote um, a work called the Hamburgische Dramaturgie, which is where that word comes from, dramaturgy. Mm. So the yeah. Hamburg Dramaturgy, which is essentially okay. a collection of essays yeah. of all his critical writings of these two years. And okay. that's, I think, where the term first was uh, recorded. Yeah, You could become a dramaturg through very many different paths. Like you could be a German studies um, graduate or you could be a writer or um, you know say like a historian yeah. or um, maybe philosopher like there's not yeah. always a direct path to this right. but it's someone who helps with um, the season planning of mm-hmm. a company so we help pick out the projects um, we assist the artistic director with putting a mandate together for the season or for the whole company um, we help with casting sometimes, depends on what the directors want. Um, we read a lot. Yeah, I can research imagine. a lot. Um, and so not every company uses a dramaturg in Canada anyways, but uh, also not every company uses a dramaturg the same way. So in yeah. Canada, there aren't as many what we call like company dramaturgs, like yeah. people who are part of the staff. And often it's mediation really <laughs> between all the team members Often the dramaturg becomes the person they all come to and right. want to talk to about something they don't fully agree with, maybe, <laughs> or they don't fully understand. Or sometimes yeah. the dramaturg is used as like sort of the walking dictionary. <laughs> yeah. Or like an encyclopedia that so- someone will have a question and they will pose it to them. So I, I have that training from Munich, mm-hmm. where I grew up, Germany. Um, but I didn't come here to find this one position as a dramaturg. Yeah. It, just, it just means, you know, you have a background in theater studies right. or say in whatever language, maybe another uh, another foreign language, or like I said, history maybe, or design. So you come with not only some knowledge, but most importantly, you come with a knowledge of where to find answers. Yes, that's <laughs> like, very important. Like we always, I remember this, we, we learned sort of the main thing you need to learn as a dramaturg is where to look up information. Yeah. <laughs> like have a pen on you yeah. at all times and know where to look. Yeah. That's more important than... That's what my husband says even with the work that he does. Is, I'm smart because I know where to look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's by training, but I, um, I did my PhD at University of Toronto and uh, then, you know, always worked on the side just to some money but also get to know in mm. the field here and get to know these individual artists and the companies with their different mandates 
And so I often worked in play development at the time, like basically people, writers say, well, can you look at my script? Can you give me some feedback on my draft? That's usually how it starts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you, you know, there's all these different metaphors for dramaturgy, actually. Like, I like one that one of my good friends always uses is um, a dramaturgy is like a midwife. Like, the playwright is the one who births the work. Yeah. But you're there to make that the best possible event. For oh, them. that's really cool. Um, and you're there to support. And in the end, you're part of it, but you're not the one who can claim right. work for them. Yeah. So um, is that helpful, then, being the director of Nathan the Wise? Did you also, were you your own drama? Yeah, in this case, very much so. But I had a fantastic assistant. You did. Who is also... Uh, trained similarly to me so yes I would say we both were also our own dramaturgs yeah. <laughs> you know she would come in with these amazing charts of all the research we did like the you know the history of Jerusalem was a big wow. big topic that was something my husband really noticed actually when we were watching it is how real to life it was the feelings that he experienced because he's been to Jerusalem he oh, just wow. went earlier this year and yeah, he was saying as it was progressing, he's like, I feel like I'm in Jerusalem again. Oh, wow. That's such a great thing. Yeah. To yeah. So there were people in the cast who had been there or were actually mm -hmm. from there, but neither my assistant nor I had been there. And so we relied on um, a lot of imagery, a lot of, uh, of course, you know, media, YouTube. Um, but we also just read a ton of books about Jerusalem like actually also novels set in Jerusalem okay um, I mean I listen to all of them on audiobooks I can't really read any, <laughs> any books yeah. these days, but I probably yeah I already probably I probably read about six books fiction and non-fiction yeah about Jerusalem just right. before that just to get a, I guess a sense of what's typical for mm -hmm. like the lighting the materials the presence of the soldiers of mm -hmm. course was a big component of how we wanted to build yeah. that world Having different colors, different fabrics, yeah. and different languages clash, and sort of the the constant juxtaposition of violence, or at least risk of violence, and the commerce mm -hmm. and celebration of commerce and of tourism, yeah. <laughs> and the opportunism that comes with it. We wanted to show that as a specific uh, aspect of the city, right? Um, so yeah, so all of this is done in advance, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is then further developed with the designers and the cast when you're working on it. Mm -hmm. But in this case, a lot of research went into uh, developing the vision in advance, just so that we would feel like we know where we're setting this. Right. Yeah. Well, and then that makes your audience connect a lot more when you've put that much work and effort into really knowing part of the story. Yeah, and I just want to mention, so it's not being misrepresented. I, yeah. I am a translator which uh, also came about by just writing the translations <laughs> people asked me for, yeah. like people would find a German play and or had heard of a German play or a playwright and wanted me to okay. um, make it accessible for Canadians. And so then I, that became sort of a niche for me over the last 15 years or so. So I've done a lot of translations of German plays and staged some of them myself and some of them have been staged by others. Um, so... I've done that a lot and mm -hmm. I love it. And it also really feeds into, I think, what you stage. So in a sense, if mm. you if you translate the same text that you then stage yourself. So you translated Nathan the Wise? No. So no. I just want to make Different sure that's, okay. yeah. that's not 
That's the what we want to make yeah. clear. Got it. So I do that a lot, and I have staged my own translations a lot. Yeah. But this was a translation that was given to me as a proposal by the festival. And I thought this was a really successful adaptation. So I was very happy to have that. And there was no there was no talk of me having to do my own translation. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Because that would have you you can't do that in the same That's a lot. at the same time. So then what got you interested in the more philosophical and emotional and intellectual type of place like have you always been interested in that or is it just more lately well that's a really interesting question i don't i don't know that i would have even identified called them that yeah (laughs) well i heard i asked that instead of the what first you got you interested in the dramatic arts because that one seems a little bit more well it's specific i'm yeah i'm happy to hear that that's how i classify (laughs) the work the work i i do but um this show was proposed to me mm-hmm. by Anthony Timolino. So it was sitting on his pile, I think, of uh, absolute favorites for a long time. It seemed to fit this year's mandate of the playbill. Got it. So the topic of this season was um, crossing boundaries, yeah. I think. I love to be able to claim this show as my proposal, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was just very, very intelligent um, season planning. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, I'm very honored that he thought that I'd be the good, a good person to direct this. Right. Um, so yeah, of course, I mean, I, I always think that every director will say the same thing. That's why I'm just hesitant to answer that question because to me, it's obvious that a text has to intellectually challenge you and emotionally stimulate you. Yeah. And if it only does one or the other, then you're just not going to be fulfilled or think about it mm-hmm. for much longer afterwards. At the same time, Lessing, I think, maybe was a good, particularly good um, text for me at this point because I have been thinking about faith mm-hmm. a lot, for example. Partially because, you know, I had my daughter and the idea of bringing her up or bringing a kid up in a certain faith or deciding yeah. not bringing. Uh, a kid up in a certain faith is something that comes up at some point. And obviously we had to decide, uh, do we want to baptize her? Because mm-hmm. both my husband and I are Catholic. Yeah. Um, and we did baptize her and we were very um, clear on that. And for us, that wasn't a big uh, discussion. But knowing so many other families who um, who either struggle with that decision because they're by religious couple or by racial or by ethnic mm-hmm. or by cultural couple or because they're both um they've both abandoned whatever religion they were right. brought up in but they feel like they now have to reclaim something for themselves and for their family as new rituals yeah and i find that fascinating and even harder like i i can't imagine what i would do if i did if i abandoned all my Christian upbringing and then wanted to recreate some kind of ritual around the holidays for example Um, do I need them why would I need them Mm -hmm. what are they supposed to do for the family what does it do spiritually how do I offer something to the child if I don't if I already know I don't want to um, communicate my own spirituality oh man these are so many conversations that Scott and I have been having I'm sure right it must be on most people's minds now who are non-religious yeah 
people who are struggling with religion. Right. Um, so I found that fascinating. And I mean, the, these questions come up in very practical you know, conversations, like people asking me, um, you know, or people showing me like, whatever, like they made a, say they made um, a Christmas tree, but they don't maybe really care about Christmas aspect of it mm-hmm. and so I'm just fascinated by that. like what does this do then what is the Christmas tree for? right why do we have it why do you have it or um, a friend of mine telling me that she's trying to come up with um, customs and rituals herself now that mean something mm-hmm. and um, and just working through that what does it mean for for them and I also I don't know maybe I'm I've changed my mind over the last three, four months about this too, but I've always thought that it might be easier for a child to have been given some kind of religious background or upbringing, and then they can decide, decide later if they want to reject it. Yeah. But not to learn anything about any of the religions is going to be even harder. Oh, that's a good point later to um to catch up on yeah well like how do they know that they don't want this if right. they don't know about it yeah um so i feel and this is somewhat related to your questions um i feel like i, I probably didn't know enough about other religions yeah. because i was only raised i would 100 agree with you on that one and i'm not saying that i would now change my mind about that you know picking the religion necessarily but just as a context i think mm-hmm. it would, it's so important to learn how they're all connected and um what caused what when yeah. right <laughs> and how all the conflicts really connected and that so much of it is much more common between the religions than maybe we thought we know mm-hmm. what we are being taught and so i don't know i found this um i found this fascinating for a while and also And I think I mentioned this in my um, program notes, the fact that as as someone who's still part of a Mm -hmm. church, it's even harder now to say that than to say, I don't believe anything. Yeah. (laughs) And I find that so interesting. And maybe that's not the same in Germany, but definitely in my time here in Canada, I've experienced that many times. Yeah. Where, you know, you even think twice about whether you want to say to someone that you, you know, you want to go to church on Sunday, you can meet at 11 and not at 9 or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, is that is that odd? You know, and I find that so interesting that it's turned around almost within a generation, mm-hmm. whereas it was weird and uh, maybe not respected as much, uh, even just a generation, maybe two generations ago. Right. To yeah. not be part of a, a church or any religion, and now it's the other way around. Yeah, totally. So then on the topic of church and upbringing, you mentioned you're a Catholic. So then what was your church and religious experience like growing up? Yeah, so we didn't really, again, we didn't really question it much, I think. Like we grew up in a smaller town outside of Munich, but my father was from there, from Bavaria, which is um, largely Catholic. Yeah. My mom is from the former East uh, Germany, so um, they for a while had to abandon religion mm. and communism. But then they fled uh, to the West when she was 12, and they grew up Protestant. So there was always that division within the family, right. the division between Protestant and Catholic. 
But I think as children, my sister and I didn't really think too much about that. Like we just thought it's all the same, really. Yeah. We just noticed later that we didn't like the Protestant churches as much as the Catholic ones because they're just not as opulent and mm. not as um, inspiring yeah. <laughs> as architecture. Um, but in terms of a belief, I don't think we had a strong opinion on um, whether we're Catholic or Protestant. We were just kind of, we we were in the, like we as children were Protestant, uh, sorry, were Catholic. Mm-hmm. They had to decide, obviously, my parents. Right. But it was pretty clear because my father had, I think, stronger ties to Catholicism than my mom insisted on Protestantism. So it's it wasn't, I think, a big um, conflict. Um, so I always really liked going to like Bible studies, and I really um, enjoyed like the first confirmation and those those times when you learn more and you intensify the relationship with the church yeah. as a teenager. I remember that being an enriching time but I don't think I was one of those precocious <laughs> kids who really questioned it yes yeah. I think I just went along and was interested in the intellectual aspect of it and maybe in the historical aspect and the musical aspect of it but I was never sort of aware enough right. of, the, of the problems right so has that changed for you over the years yeah of, of yeah. course and I think coming to Canada you're just bombarded with these different options that you have yeah. and everyone coming from a different background and suddenly the playing field looks just very different and you're no longer part of majority necessarily. And um, at the same time, there is a through line for me because I've been singing in choirs since I was 10 uh, until today. And so um, as a child, you know, I was singing in choirs that were not necessarily church choirs but you would still occasionally mm-hmm. sing sacred music yeah. then I became part of a choir who was mostly singing in a church and now I've been singing in a church choir ever since I've come to Toronto so for me that has always been mm-hmm. a really strong connection um, music and and spirituality I guess yeah and so that I found that question really interesting because I I don't think I would have necessarily claimed that until I saw that question that singing to me has almost always been something that's connected to the sacred canon right and so I find that also something interesting like what does it mean like if you're a non-believer and you Mm -hmm. sing sacred music or you've singing you end up singing in a in a church yeah does it matter right (laughs) I don't know you can't Um, really separate spirituality from the arts yeah, or, or or I don't know the answer to that to it, but it's definitely. Um, I mean, I believe that I can sense that the people that I'm singing with mm-hmm. have similar spiritual um, beliefs or backgrounds or experiences. I mean, obviously, I don't know that, right? But there's something familiar about it for me. Yeah, and I heard someone say the other day. I believe it was Eugene Peterson. And he was talking about spirituality and how it's a word that doesn't mean what we think it does or it doesn't hold the same meaning anymore. And he was talking about how it's essentially we're all spiritual because we have breath and we are breathing. So whether you are religious or mm-hmm. not and whether you're a believer or not, you are spiritual because you are a human living on this mm-hmm. planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very profound and very thought-provoking and that 
if I'm just a human, then yeah, I can't separate spirituality from anything else because it's just part of me. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting, but yeah. Yeah, and I think, like like I said, we grew up celebrating um, religion with music. Like we, we mm-hmm. celebrate a god, yeah. a divinity with with this music. And I always thought of music as something... Oh, I should I should revise this. I I don't think I always thought of it like that, but I have come to think of it much more um, as a as a as a divine tool, like something yeah. that connects the heavens and the earth, uh, the heavens and the earth. Yeah, and I I feel like singing in a church choir, performing sacred music. It's almost like you can't separate that. You can't yeah. really feel like you're not somehow being used as a tool of some kind of divine you're giving me goosebumps entity <laughs> <laughs> like maybe that sounds very cheesy but i do think that i'm now way more yeah. aware of that connection than i probably was yeah when i right. was younger yes so then you mentioned that working on this play um caused you to look at the makeup of your own identity this is a quote that you have it says it caused you to look at the makeup of your own identity along with your beliefs, presumptions, and fears with greater honesty. So tell me a little bit more about that. So I found I found out a few things about myself during this experience that I probably didn't really know about myself. And that's what I meant with that. Like I, I just got to, you know, experience some some new responses yeah. that I hadn't really uh, been aware of or expected and one was actually it's very closely related to stuff we've been talking about um like if you ask me in theory like are you uh, familiar with different religions or also are you, you know, familiar with people of different um, religious backgrounds living in canada specifically in toronto where you know you have such a huge diversity mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. people around you at all times um i would have said yes of course it doesn't really matter where anybody's from. It doesn't really matter what belief they have. I connect on a either um, emotional or intellectual level. That's always something that comes up later or doesn't come up at all. Right. Um, that's how I went into this. And I've made this really disorienting, disorienting experience that I do think that we intuitively look for commonalities in a group. And... That's why we go around the table and ask um, about mm. people's names and maybe where they're from and who knows whom maybe in the group right. or yeah. like just the very basics at the beginning when you first um, meet a new cast and team. And then, of course, you go deeper into that and you learn more about them, hopefully early on. So you <laughs> get to know who's hist- who has which history and preferences and um, styles and whatever they do personally in their, in their private lives. So I think there is a reason why we do that because we feel um, much more safe when we find that there's other people who have something in common with you. Yeah. But I didn't know that that was so strongly related to um, a spiritual background or a religious background in this case. So what I mean by that is that I thought, okay, this is going to be really interesting. We're going to have to be very honest and very... Uh, sensitive in the conversations we're having about faith. We're going to talk about what people's faiths are. 
um, how they feel about them, if they abandon them, if they still adhere to them, how they stand, where they stand, uh, how they maybe how they've changed in their relationship to their faith, how we all differ, and so on. And after about three days, it turned out that I'm the only one in this group of about 20 people, if you call, if you count the cast and the, the creative team, mm -hmm. yeah. that was still a believer. Wow. And I don't think I expected that just because I thought that the odds are kind of maybe half and half or I don't know, maybe, maybe there's like 10% who mm -hmm. still go to like, I don't know, to some kind of ceremony, organized religion, organized of religion sort. of yeah. some sort. And, um, and that was really interesting in terms of uh, interesting in terms of just assessing this slice of demographic that we're with. Yeah. Um, but also assessing what that meant for me as an individual like what I, what it made me feel like and i don't think i expected it to have this impact i, hmm. I remember thinking okay so i can't i can't really share that with anyone yeah. like i mean yeah. i shared the information fairly early on because we like i said we had many different conversations about um family histories and our own relationship to religion and so obviously that came up early but a, I was wondering what people would be thinking and if they all thought that that was so naive and backwards, um, that everybody has moved on mm, yeah, <laughs> to, right. to a more advanced state. <laughs> um, and that maybe they would think that's odd, you know, that uh, still, even just the fact that I'm using the word still, context, <laughs> right? that I'm still um, someone who sings in a church choir and um, believes. Yeah. But then also having a feeling of um, otherness myself, like not actually feeling like I could share this experience with okay, someone. Yeah. So that I would know that if I mentioned this, they would know this. Or if I listened to a certain song or like a piece of sacred music that means a lot to me, for example, to feel like they could potentially share that experience with me on a similar level. Mm -hmm. I always felt a bit, um, a little bit like a, like a dinosaur or something. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like a little bit like, oh, well, I still live in this kind of configuration and everyone else has shed yeah. that and they have all exper experienced and explained um, very clearly in this rehearsal context and in this um, debate that we had over the last over those three months why they've abandoned religion or why they're uh, why they never had a bond with religion or when it happened how it happened um, what their intellectual standpoint is what their new philosophy is. so it, yeah it's interesting like they all it felt interesting. it seemed to me like they all felt like would like we should be done with this and so the questions that the play Nathan the Wise poses and challenges you with uh, became very real and personal yeah. and very quickly for all, all of, of you. Yeah. yeah, And to actually listen to others and consider their standpoints and their experiences as equally relevant as your own is really, I think, not quite as easy as we mm. all like to think. Yeah. Because I do think we all 
consider ourselves relatively tolerant and open and educated and we know that there's not one truth we kind of know that but then i don't think that that's really what Hmm. how we behave and how we speak yeah until you come face to face with what do you really believe about this person or this belief or whatever until you actually have to make a decision Mm -hmm. so to speak yeah Yeah. we can be a little bit wishy-washy about it or or um I don't know, but yeah. I felt definitely, yeah, I felt definitely personally um, challenged, like in both sense of the yeah. words, like challenged as in like it was a challenge for me, but also right. I was being challenged. <laughs> and I felt like I had to challenge my own um, belief system that, like I said earlier, I, I didn't really question as much as I could have probably. Um, even just learning about the Crusades and just getting the, the bigger picture mm-hmm. and sort of putting some of the puzzle pieces together of how those three large religions related and how one came out of another, I did see uh, different perspectives much more clearly and felt a bit disoriented in my own standpoint. Yeah. So I think that was probably the biggest challenge personally for me. And to not make that, uh, make it about that, mm-hmm. and and not be um, deterred by that, right. but actually be inspired by that. Yeah, that's really good. So then you chose to have a female act the role of Nathan, which I thought was fascinating, and she did such a brilliant job. I forgot half the time that it was even a female. Right. She did so yeah, well. Yeah, I heard that from several. Yeah, mm-hmm. just the way she embodied the role and just everything she did really fantastic but can you explain to me some of your reasons by why you chose to have a female act that role yeah absolutely so it wasn't something that i had decided on from the beginning not at all i was actually just thinking of who are the people i like to watch on stage who are these really amazing artists who can you know read the phone book to me and i'd still be glued (laughs) to their faces and to their performances and then I started to think more about what does it really mean to me um, that we claim someone is wise, wiser than the others. What does that mean to us individually today, to me? And then it became, again, it became relatively personal for me. I thought, if I want to talk about a wise person in the community, I need to at least think through for me who are the people that I consider wise in my life or who have encountered even if i've only met them once yeah who i think of as wise and why are they wiser than others and what does that mean and how does it actually um differ from intel intellect or cleverness or um yeah just being an intelligent thinker mm-hmm. like yeah. what's wisdom and so i thought of a few people and i i don't know i just kept coming across women <laughs> In my, uh, in my circle of colleagues or friends or even just people, like I said, that I that I heard of or that I know about, it doesn't even have to be someone I, I'm friends with. But yeah. I, just, I just thought of more and more women. I thought like there are a lot of wise women uh, that I look up to or that I would, um, that I would ask for advice. Then I was interested in finding out for myself what I would think if I saw the title Nathan the Wise and saw a woman 
like what are the questions mm -hmm. that are elicited by this mm -hmm. juxtaposition? Yeah. And then I thought, okay, I can answer them for myself, but isn't it just as important to know that these questions will come up in the first place? So in other words, if we have a title that suggests um, a wise person, a male, and a Jewish person, it's all in the title, the yeah. otherwise. Right. Um, do we want to show um, a, a male Jewish uh, looking, let's say, or Jewish um, mannered or whatever it is that the theater can do to, mm -hmm. to yeah. make you think of the stereotypes of Jewishness? Do we want to see that? Um, and what does that achieve? It became more and more clear to me that that there is just another layer that we can um, discuss and discover when we have a woman doing that. So again, it wasn't so much a concept idea from the beginning. It just it uh, crystallized over time. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw Diane Flax in the audition, it was really clear to me that that kind of wisdom that she as a person brings is what I want to talk about. Yeah. Like who is she as a, you know, as a Jewish person, um, as a non-religious person at the same time, as an intellectual, as a a comedian, <laughs> as an incredible performer, mm -hmm. as a mother, as so a queer person, layers. who is also very aware of performativity yeah. of her roles. Like who, who is she and what, she, what can she bring to this conversation? And then it became clear that I wanted her. And then we also felt like more and more these, these, these women uh, came up in conversation. Like we, while we started in the first week, I think, in March, we heard about the New Zealand um, attacks, mm -hmm. the terror attacks in Church Christchurch. Yeah. And then the female prime minister right. who spoke and then uh, offered the families of the victims to pay for the funerals, for example, mm -hmm. and for, I think, some, some compensation afterwards. Yeah. I remember thinking, yeah, there are some really important female voices that if we had more leaders of that kind of quality and of that kind of mindset, maybe that would make a difference. And what are the female and the male qualities that these people bring to their role? Mm -hmm. So then I also thought, you know, even if people disagree with it and are bothered by the fact that they're watching very clearly a female with um, a costume piece, yeah. you know, and uh, artificial beard, and we made it very clear that she's not trying to be a man, yeah. But even if that's the experience that they're having, then that's enough for me, like for them to start thinking about what that means. Make them a little bit uncomfortable and mm -hmm. cause them to question. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually heard people in the first preview, I believe, I heard people talk about it in the washroom. Um, <laughs> these older ladies who had incredibly important and intelligent questions about what does it mean that this is played by clearly a woman and clearly a woman who's not quite as old as this character suggests yeah. to be. This was very early on. This was a preview. And in previews, that's what you do. You you right. assess what, yeah. what's working and what isn't. Yeah. Make adjustments. So I was very pleased that in the very first preview that had an audience, the question was already being brought up and discussed and in a productive way. Yeah. So then it was one of the more challenging things of directing this play and then also what was one of the most rewarding things? 
Yeah, so the challenging things, I, I probably mentioned some of it already uh, in the other yeah. uh, questions, but I would say trying to find a balance between um, everyone being very personally involved mm -hmm. and invested in the story and in the tackling of these issues and on this, at the same time uh, keeping a distance mm -hmm. and not making it all about our personal experiences. So on the one hand, you wanted to know how everybody felt about these issues because you kind of had to to know what the trigger points are mm -hmm. in each of, of the cast members and what their family backgrounds are and where they were from and if there were, um, you know, some histories of trauma in the family or persecution, persecution or, um, you know, we had like people who had... Um, who lost all family in the Holocaust mm. or something. And, and then, and then for, for example, like knowing that, um, you know, me, my assistant, my assistant and I were the only Germans in the room. There was always this, right. this, um, yeah. underlying awareness of like, who is your family and like, where do you stand now? And even if we hadn't posed those questions, they would have been there. Mm -hmm. And so we decided at some point early on, we um, create this exercise where we all ask each other really honest questions. Mm -hmm. We wrote them all on a piece of paper. Everybody was allowed to write one or more questions. We didn't write the names underneath. And then we collected them all and put them on a pile. And then we sat around in a circle and picked a question each and read the question out loud. So it wasn't necessarily my own question that I was reading. Mm -hmm. And then people could or could not respond if they wanted to. If someone wanted to say something about it, they could. If not, we just moved on. Yeah. And so I felt that was, on the one hand, really useful to get right at the heart of the issues and to actually engage with these questions and not make it just about the piece. Yeah. But at the same time... It was a fine line, I think, that we were walking in terms okay. of making it maybe a bit too personal at times, or maybe I knew oh, I a little see. bit too much that I made. You know, it may have been easier if I hadn't known. Um, and I think we gave, you know, we gave um, permission to be personal through that, through that exercise, mm -hmm. which is incredibly important in this kind of con uh, context and process. But at the same time. Sometimes you just don't really want to make it too personal, right? And I, I knew about some people's backgrounds and their fears and their um, and their hopes. And I was obviously the play, the, the piece in the end is put is infused by this passion and this and and all this um, shared experience mm -hmm. and the sharing of these experiences. But it sometimes can be hard to just um, to just keep it professional and not make it about ourselves all the time. And just move on mm -hmm. and move past that and just think of what is the audience seeing and am I maybe reading it this way now because I this text because I know the person who's reading it has this and this attitude towards this mm -hmm. or am I actually reading it this way because the text suggests it for right. example. So then you start to fuse the actor and the character at times and Again, that can be very productive and yeah. very in inspired, but it's sometimes hard to um, to work through that. Right. And so in, I think in an ideal case, in the end, you have both. 
Mm-hmm. You have the personalities infuse the characters, but you have a piece that shows the characters and doesn't show the cast. Yeah, right. Um, so I found that uh, probably the most challenging uh, of all my directing experiences mm-hmm. with this particular mm-hmm. project. Because it was all about who we are yeah. and what we believe. Like yeah. We couldn't really separate those conversations from right. our own histories. Um, and the most rewarding, I would say, is kind of the same thing. Yeah. You, get to know, <laughs> yeah. you get to know so many different perspectives that you had just never really considered. And you just learn so much. The other, as you yeah. said. And that was just incredibly enriching. And I do believe that um, I started to think about some um, perspectives and statements and beliefs a bit differently than, mm-hmm. than I had before just because I I was constantly um, faced with them right and I think I, I felt like taking the tiniest step towards opening up something and yeah. just allowing ourselves to ask questions and not be so sure of ourselves and not claim to know something mm-hmm. that we've always grown up with to be the truth and yeah again that sounds so very um so very trite somehow but it's a huge i think it's a huge recognition Mm -hmm. that happens and i feel like that happened to some of us and maybe to some more than to others and maybe some people were already (laughs) that wise (laughs) yeah i certainly (laughs) wasn't well there was a moment in the play when nathan begins to share the parable of the rings. And that was a really impacting moment for me in watching it and seeing how the other is played out in that and how they came to the end of the story and they all realized that they had a ring and they were all all loved by the father. They all had a role to play. And then learning how to walk that out. That's the part now that it's like, okay, how do we do this for exactly. real? Exactly. And so the most rewarding, I think, is for for me as a director is when you're in the audience sometimes. I mean, it can happen in rehearsals too, but uh, in the audience and you're literally hearing the penny drop mm-hmm. with the audience. <laughs> yeah. It's so incredibly meaningful. Like that moment that you're describing at the end of the ring parable, when you understand that everybody was fighting each other because they thought the others robbed them of something. Mm-hmm. That that's obviously the metaphor for all the religious conflicts yeah. um, and that they're all loved by the Father. And when Diane, as Nathan, looked out into the audience doing that, I feel like like there was always something happening. You could sense it in yeah. the audience. Like It's totally. hard to describe, but it's actually it's, it's there. It's like some kind of vibration. Yeah. Um, and another moment where I felt that very strongly um, was the moment you already quoted earlier too, um, when Nathan says to the Christian lay brother, what makes me a Christian to you makes you a Jew to me. Yes. I felt like the, the fact that this was slightly comical mm-hmm. and therefore pointed out the absurdity of the conflict it was all based on mm-hmm. made it so incredibly impactful. People always chuckled and sighed 
and like something really happened in that line. Yeah. People really thought, I think, thought of this conflict differently because of that line. Mm-hmm. And so to feel that is incredibly rewarding when that happens. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of moments where we thought something oh, was yeah. going to happen and nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. So then in what ways, and I think you may have answered this a little bit already, but how have you become more curious and more courageous through the process and journey of directing Nathan Lies? I think I'm more aware of, as I said, not knowing and being okay with not knowing mm-hmm. a lot and being okay to have to ask questions. Um, there's a lot that I felt like I should know. And even, you know, we talked about Judaism and holidays of the different religions and customs and what the what certain dress codes mean and what certain clothing uh, attributes mean and and I just realized it's okay to not know of this and it's mm-hmm. okay to ask and people will much more likely happily share what they know than um, you know reproach you for not knowing <laughs> um, that was a big I think that was a big insight for me yeah. as well and that also others don't know everything and that they'll also ask right. so I think that makes me a bit more um, courageous in terms of learning mm-hmm. and and approaching people um at the same time i also think we have a lot more in common than we think yeah and that changes my outlook a little bit um that we may think of them of others as more different than, than common and, and i think that's it's okay too but i think to, to learn that we probably have similar fears and hopes and thoughts Mm -hmm. is encouraging yeah and so i feel a little bit more um i think generous towards Mm -hmm. myself and others yeah if that makes sense yeah so as we bring this to a close i have one more question for you and that is how do you think that we could be more gracious and shift our views of the other Probably start by really listening Mm -hmm. to the others more and not shutting down what they have to say right away by putting forward what you already think and you know you think Mm. and you already have come to some kind of conclusion about. And I thought of this um, incident the other day when I read your question um, where we, we walked home from the church service in Toronto and... As you know, it's um, election time is coming up, and there was this young woman who came up to us with um, with a flyer, and she wanted to talk to us about Andrew Shear. I just remember having all these thoughts in a short time about, hmm. okay, how is she gonna convince us that we should vote Andrew Shear? Um, should I listen to her rant about <laughs> Trudeau right now? Um, maybe I learned something, maybe I should actually um, find out what it is that she means. And she did sort of a a, a semi-good job. I think she, she didn't just rant. She was a, a Catholic, I think, and she's, she was a Christian. She kept mm-hmm. talking about being a Christian, and that from a Christian standpoint, the conservatives are really the only party that, oh. um, that would, you know, would keep, keep her oh, values wow. intact. 
And of course, you know, coming out of the church and being in that particular environment at that moment, I was thinking, well, maybe I should consider what she has to say. I don't, I don't think I should just um, move on because I've already made up my mind mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. And um, there was part of me was just like intellectually like assessing the situation and then being emotionally still kind of annoyed by <laughs> by the moment. Yeah. And um, and I just had to really stop myself. I remember thinking, okay, this is this is like such a trap. Like, of course, I'm gonna want to move on, and I don't necessarily want to hear her rant about the liberals. Um, but why not? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this was just it's just a small moment, but um, I think we will we we all encounter these moments so frequently, especially in a city like Toronto and in a country like Canada, where yeah. we are faced with um, otherness in all kinds of on all kinds of levels, and to just stop for a moment and consider what it means to be in their shoes or just like see the situation that they're discussing from the opposite perspective, mm -hmm. even if you don't end up agreeing with them, is harder than we think. But I also think it's, it's a decisive step. Yeah. So in closing, I have a quote. And this quote's actually by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And I was listening to this in a podcast this morning, and I thought it was brilliant. And he said, Love the stranger because to him you're a stranger. This sense that we are enlarged by the people who are different from us we are not threatened by them. That needs cultivating, can be cultivated, and would lead us to see the 21st century is full of blessing and not fear. Thank you. <laughs> and I thought that was great, and it would be very fitting considering the play that you did and how you are helping people to view the world like that. So thank you very much, and I very much appreciated the play that you directed. Thank you so much for having me and for making this a subject for your listeners. Only you could have experienced the play too. It was so interesting to hear the thoughts and the process behind how certain ideas and concepts came to be for this play. I also found it very intriguing to hear how Greta experienced herself feeling like an outsider because of her faith, and how this was the very thing that Nathan the Wise was addressing. Beggett wrote in her Playbill article, I think many of us might be less tolerant than we'd like to think we are. It's one thing to say that we wish for the harmonious coexistence of different religions and cultures. It's quite another to explore what this actually means practically and personally, on a day-to-day -day basis, and what it means for our own belief systems. May we all learn to be empathetic towards outsiders, to those on the margins. May we not think of ourselves as better or more worthy because of our status, culture, or privilege. And may we all know we are loved in equal measure. If you'd like to read the parable that is mentioned in the podcast, Burkett's editorial, or more information about upcoming plays, you can visit the show notes to find the links. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, or need further clarification on anything you've heard, please don't hesitate to reach out in person or contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, and reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Thanks for listening.